Good morning. We are uh, glad you're here this morning. It's a beautiful Lord's Day morning, and uh, I know we have lots of travels in the summer, but I'm glad you're here this morning. We've had our young people going everywhere, our children going everywhere, and uh, they come back so refreshed and alive and renewed, and we're thankful for that ministry to them, and I hope your spirit is being ministered to as well in a number of ways. We're here to grow in the Lord together. We're in Romans. I hope you have your Bibles in some form. Romans 6 is where we are today. And uh, we'll continue on in this uh, rather difficult teaching that we face from time to time, although this passage is a little clearer than some others we've had um, in the recent couple of weeks. We're going to read uh, chapter 6 of Romans, beginning with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Skip to verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. That's an important verse. If you want to take notes in your Bible or underline, underline verse 12. Do not offer your, any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of, righteous, of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slave to righteousness. I hate wearing a seatbelt. And you know what I hate worse? I hate worse that the government tells me to. I'm a rebel at heart. But there are times that I'm better at wearing seatbelt. I mean, my I always do. But I'm better in my attitude sometimes than others. Like when I get distracted and swerve and I get a horn blown at me. And I realized I could have caused an accident. Or when I see an accident in front of me in which it's, it's pretty bad. Maybe somebody's thrown then I'm going to tighten up. Or when I read an article about somebody being killed in an automobile accident, and the last line is, he was not wearing his seatbelt. Suddenly, I get a little more serious about it. I think when we read some passage of Scripture, even like this one, even though it's easier to understand than some we've looked at recently, we see them in the abstract. And nobody here would say, I don't believe that. We believe it simply because it's in the Bible and we believe the Bible. It's one thing to believe something in the abstract 
It's another thing to really grasp what the text is saying and fully live it. If we know this text only in theory or hypothetically, we will never know the true change that we can enjoy when Jesus Christ is absolute Lord of our lives. You ever get tired of not changing? You know, when we're baptized into Christ, there's some things that immediately go away. And we bid good riddance and we're done. There are other things that we don't even know are sin. And it takes us a while for us to be taught what sin is. So change is brought about. There are some things that we start, we start praying about from the time we're baptized, and here we are years later, and we're still dealing with the same thing. How, why is it that it's so hard to change? When it's all said and done, we are changed. That's what this text is about. So if you want to be changed, if you're tired that you haven't changed, if you're committed to changing because of Jesus Christ your Lord, I hope today will be a little encouraging to you. Now, remember, there are people today, as well as people in the first century, these Roman believers to whom Paul is writing, that, that are leaning toward the abuse of grace. Because the first six chapters, I'm mean, sorry, the first five chapters of Romans are all about salvation that cannot be achieved, only received. Salvation's a gift. Chapters 6 through 8 of Romans are about a faith that brings about change. And so we'll never, we'll never be able to be the people we want to be unless we understand these three things out of this text. First of all, understand the severity of spiritual slavery. There were people then and now who think, if God's grace is so wonderful, why be so, why be so concerned about sin? That's what verses 3 and 4 are about. If, if, shall we go on sinning that grace can increase? In other words, if God is so great, why, not, why do we worry about sin at all? Some people will say, I know this is wrong. I know I shouldn't, but I just really think God's going to forgive me when it's all said and done. Well, now the Bible, that, that's just an abuse of grace. And that is a misunderstanding of what grace is when it's applied. Further in the text in verses 15 and 16, he says, look, when you offer yourself to someone, you become a slave. Whether it's to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, when we think of slavery, we, of course, think of the Civil War period. But slavery in the New Testament world was far different. There were millions and millions of slaves in the, uh, on the European continent under the Roman Empire, and the whole economy was based on slavery. Uh, you could be a doctor or a lawyer. You could be, have another profession and be a slave because sometimes you found yourself indebted to someone for a certain amount of money you couldn't pay back, and so you were under their direction. They became your master until you could pay the debt. So the Roman Empire was built like that, and that's where the spiritual application comes in, because every person on the face of the earth is found in one of two categories. The category where there is no other God except Yahweh God of the Bible and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, and then the category that, that everybody else is in, people that have some other 
person or thing or idea as their God. There's no third category. There's nobody, there's nobody who can say, well, I don't, I don't answer to anybody. Everybody under, uh, 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 answers to something or someone. That's just how it is. A God is anything or any person or any idea that gives your life meaning, that gives your life significance, that makes you feel like you're worth something. It could be your career. It could be your, your uh, family. It could be sports. It could be a trophy. It could be praise. It could be goals. It could be dreams. It could be your influence. It could be the approval of other people. It could be achievement. It could be physical attractiveness. It could be power. It could be politics. It could be money. It could be romance. The list goes on and on. It's whatever makes you feel most meaningful in your life. That's what controls you. So verse 12 says, this is why I wanted you to underline it and note a phrase. 12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, if you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, maybe you still use it today, this verse, that last phrase, evil desires, is translated lust. And when we see that word, we think it's something about sexual desire. Or even when we see evil desires, we think about anything that's dark and bleak and a gross sin against God. But actually, that word, the word, the Greek word there is a hard word to translate in the, in the Greek language. But basically, the word is epithamia, and it basically means overdrive or overdesire. So it's anything in your life, even a good thing in your life, that moves in the position of being first. That's why it's so dangerous. Now, the Bible says all good and perfect gifts come from the Father above, the Father of heavenly lights. Paul writes to Timothy that everything has been given to us for our enjoyment. So what you have in your possession, God wants us to enjoy. But be careful. Anything we own any person in our life, any idea or dream we have can become the, the thing that threatens the position that only Jesus Christ is worthy of having. So the good becomes the ultimate. Does that address where you are at all? That something good in your life you fear may have become the ultimate. Here's a way that you can Determine if something has become the ultimate that's supposed to be good. First of all, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Something blocks you from getting a good thing. A person takes the promotion that you wanted. Somebody else gets the blue ribbon or the trophy that you were going for. Somebody else got the top grade. Somebody else got the accolades. You've been driven by this one thing, and it goes away, and you are terribly bitter about it. You blow up. You become ballistic, or maybe not. Maybe you seem to be fine, but inside you are seething, and you are on a slow burn. You can't drop it. Second, what makes you afraid? Something good in your life is threatened. So you're in a dating relationship. 
And she walks in the room, and he looks at her. And suddenly, you know, you, you, you feel this intense threat. Or, or there's, there's somebody at work that is shining better than you are, and you fear you may lose your position of influence there. Now, this, it's the kind of fear that paralyzes you where you, you can't hardly function, you can't enjoy life, it's, it's controlling you. you, you I, I've been blessed in this church in so many ways, even recently, by people going through these tremendous health challenges. I mean, when, when death is threatening them, and to watch them in their faith and their stability and security, their spirit, is there fear there? Sure. Is there concern? Absolutely. But it doesn't control them. It's such an encouragement to me in my faith. Third, what makes you grieve? What makes you grieve? You lose something good and you weep. It takes you to the pits of despair. Uh, and it takes you months to get over. You just as soon die as, as, to, as, to, as to go on in life. You can't bear your life without this one thing or this possibility or this person or whatever it is. Now, mind you, I want to be realistic there are all things, kinds of things that upset us in life's journey, right? Sure. There are all things that kind of evoke fear in us. Fear is a real feeling that we have. Uh, or, or there's something that makes us sad. I'm not talking about general responses to conditions of life that evoke different emotions. That's part of the human experience. I'm talking about those kind of emotions that control our behavior and control how we view God. It controls our prayer life, our maybe our church life, our Christian friendships. It's the kind of thing that begins to take us under. That's what I'm talking about. If those kinds of things step in, then I fear for you that that has become, that's usurped the authority only reserved for God. The very first commandment, everything that we've said so far, learned from the scripture here, is what God says at the very beginning when he gave the law to the Jews, the very first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. This is what he's talking about. This is what Paul's talking about. He will not tolerate any other gods before him. So we have no problem understanding, adhering to what Paul is writing here, if we would just learn that one commandment. I may have shared this quote with you sometime in the past. Forgive me if I have and you remember it, but it's worth repeating anywhere. It's by David Foster Wallace, who was at the top of his profession. And uh, he committed suicide about nine years ago. And just a few weeks before he took his life, he was speaking at a commencement service. And this is part of his message. He said this. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, 
you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. No one is free from a master. No one. But every other master other than Jesus will drain you of life. There is one master alone that will, that when you become his slave, his servant, will make you what you were created to be. That's what he does. That's what he's a master at doing. He, he, he forms us into exactly who we're meant to be. And that's when we experience true freedom, being who we're created to be. So we need to understand how important and significant this is that Jesus Christ is our only Lord and Master. Second, grasp the magnitude of unity with Jesus. Now we talk about that. We sing about that. What's that really mean and look like? Verses 3 through 5 say, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now, of course, he's talking about our literal baptism. When we are baptized by immersion in Jesus Christ, we are symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but we are also experiencing at that time our own death. We are dying to sin. We're dying to our past. We are, we, are, we are welcoming the Holy Spirit of God into our lives by virtue of the fact we are now been clean, cleaned. We've been, we've been washed. That's what happened. That's why we don't sprinkle babies because God wants our wills. He wants our decision on what we will do with Jesus. And so we have to be able to make that decision for ourselves. So, so then we are, the third thing I, I mentioned last week, what we don't talk about enough is being united. Now, being united here is such an important word. You know, uh, you know I, I get to do a lot of weddings in ministry, and they're, they're joyous events. They're, they're great events. And I, I have never had anybody walk out on one yet. It could happen someday. You know, you can have a lot of great dating experiences before you get married. You can fall in great love for one another you can be devoted. You can be won over. But I tell you, you are not united until you state those vows to each other and the ring goes on the finger. And you can have a wedding plan and you can walk to that altar and you can have a white dress on or a tux on and you can say, no, I don't think so, and leave. And you haven't broken anything. Now, you have ticked off some people, but, but you haven't done anything against God, Right? You have come into a new relationship, a covenant relationship. That's what baptism is. You can have a lot of experiences with God. You can have spine-tingling moments. You can pray to him. You can give praise to him. But until that ring goes on the finger, there is not a covenant relationship that has been initiated. That's why baptism is so important. And this word united is so significant. It comes from the world of horticulture. It means to be engrafted. Engrafted, grafted into the root, Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating picture. These two things happen when we're baptized. We are united with Christ in his past. What happened in his past has everything to do with us. Because in the past, at the, toward the end of the service, we will hold this bread and this cup, and we are celebrating the past event in Jesus' life to which I am united. 
He died in, for my sins, and I never forget the cross of Christ. That moment in history changed everything. Our sins were dealt with. They're dealt. And so I'm united with Christ. Second, I, well, well let, me, let me say a couple of things. Because Colossians 3 says this, and you're Alan, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's what this word picture, united, is all about. Our lives are hidden with Christ. How many of you were dirt poor when you got married? Oh, you're rich people. Oh, no, they're the hands. Okay. All right. Yeah, you know, yeah, we didn't hardly have anything either. I, I remember we had, we didn't even know we didn't have anything at the windows until we saw pictures later on. Like, where, where are curtains? We didn't can afford curtains, I remember. And, uh, uh, you know, neither one of us had a lot. Now, you may have the good pleasure of marrying somebody who had a pretty good bank account. Maybe you had a rich father-in-law or something. If that was true, I won't charge you with being a gold digger, okay? But if that's true, if you married somebody of means and you didn't have, immediately you had. Because the two were joined together, and even though you didn't have, now you have. That's what happens when we are united with Christ. When we are united with Christ in baptism, it means everything that is of the Son becomes ours. We come to him dirt poor, impoverished spiritually with no hope. And when we are united with him, God looks at you and me then with the same, with the same beauty and delight and glory in which he sees his own begotten son, Jesus. Do you know that? Do you understand that today? See, you and I, we know our struggle, right? We know we're not who we're supposed to be. We know we're far from being like Jesus. But as far as God's concerned, because we've been united with Christ in his past, our life is hidden with Christ in God, his wealth becomes our wealth. And we are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Don't lose sight of that. Now, the second thing that happens is we're united in Christ's future. It says we will certainly, not hopefully, not kind of, not sort of, not maybe, we will certainly be united in his resurrection. Now, I love this thought because here's one of those things, well, hypothetically, theoretically, I believe that. Friends, this is absolutely true. This is what God is telling us. We are united with Christ's future. There's a special Greek word that's used only two times in the Bible. It's not in our text. Two times in the Bible. It's a very significant word. The word is palagenesia. Palagenesia. Say it with me. Palagenesia. You see the word Genesis tucked away in there. It's a Greek word. It comes out of the philosophical word of the New Testament world. The Stoics carried this philosophy of Palagenesia. They believed that the world was continuing to get worse, but that every now and then, throughout the history of the world, there will be those occasions that the world somehow will be burned and it will be renewed and begin again. And so, two times that word is used in the New Testament. The first time is by Jesus in Matthew 19. He says, truly I tell you, at the renewal, there's the word, 
At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking to the apostles there. And then he says us, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, fields for my sake. And I bear the question, it bears the question, you know, what have we left? What have we left behind to follow Jesus? If you've left anything, you'll receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. This is talking about our great future. Peter says later in the New Testament that all the earth, all the world, all the universe, all the elements are going to be destroyed by fire, and he's going to bring renewal. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth he's going to create for us, right? Now, you hold on to that. The second time the word is used is Titus 3.5. Paul the apostle writes, Jesus saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but through the washing of rebirth, and there's the word, renewal by the Holy Spirit. My point is, brothers and sisters, the same power of God that is going to destroy the elements by fire and create a new heaven and new earth is the very same power that comes to reside in us by the Holy Spirit of God when we are born again in the waters of baptism. That's what we have available to us. That's who we have available to us. And therefore, we can indeed become increasingly like Jesus Christ, our Master and our Lord. Grace. You see why anybody who says, well, I know when I'm done this, God's going to forgive me. Do you see how heinous a thought that is? Do you see how, how absolutely it strikes against the very heart and nature of God? And third, live fully your new identity. See, I think that's our problem. We don't really see ourselves and value and grasp onto this new identity. Verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That old self has been crucified. Now, that's not only theory. That actually happened in Christ Jesus. And because of that, I can be a brand new person. I, the chains of, the, of my slavery to the old masters have been broken. And I don't have to keep answering to them. Verse 11 again, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. We have such pride and some egos. We want to demand our rights. All of that, it continues to reign over. We've got to cut all that off. If, if, you're, if we are not changing like we want to change, we've forgotten our resources. We've forgotten what has happened to us. It's not automatic. It's a choice we make. And then we align ourselves with the Father and with our Savior Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, claiming our new identity and living our new identity. Let me put it this way. Uh, we partner with TCM International, based right here in Speedway. Back in the 60s, a man named Gene Doolin, some of you remember Gene Doolin, who's with the Lord now, he had a heart for people who lived under communism. He saw this old hunting lodge overrun by brush on a little country road outside a village, Heiligenkreuz, Austria. He wanted a place out of which Christian literature could be distributed to church preachers, workers, leaders, in churches under communism, Christians who were trying to live their Christian faith under communistic rule, where they were terribly persecuted. 
And so he found this hunting lodge, and they, people risked their lives to take, take this literature behind the Berlin Wall, that great iron curtain in that, in that controlled world. In 89, President Reagan said, take down that wall. And the Berlin Wall fell. Most of us remember that day. And suddenly, all those people were free. Communism collapsed. And that center for literature became a graduate school eventually, where Eastern European preachers, church workers, leaders, church members like you all would travel to Heiligerkreuz, Austria to get a certificate or a, a graduate degree to do ministry well. And so our church has partnered with them for a number of years. Many of our own people here in the church had traveled to, to Vienna, to Heiligenkreuz, to minister to the students there. I had the privilege the last 10 years or so to travel. I'll be going in September again to teach there. The first time I went, about 10 years ago, I taught Romanians. I was teaching principles of Christian education. And during their exam, my Romanian translator said to me, you know when they go home, they're not going to do any of this. I said, well, thanks a lot. I said, well, why? why, why? Immediately I thought, I, so I guess I'm not teaching. She goes, it's nothing about your teaching. You just have to understand we've all grown up under communism. We've grown up under a different kind of government that stifles people. They only learned what they were to do if someone told them to do it. And so they were enslaved to this kind of, kind of, of, of life, and so they weren't taught to live freely. They couldn't think for themselves. She said, if you go home with us and tell us every week what to do on Sunday, they'll do it. But they don't know how to think for themselves. That's exactly what Paul is getting at, friends. We have come under a new government the old government has fallen. Its rulers have fallen. But when we come into the new kingdom of the love of God, there's a new master, but the old reign still wants to take priority. And so we have to learn a new way of living and thinking and operating, even seeing ourselves. The good news is, friends, wherever we are, we can be better because of the power of of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, if you've not been born again, if you've not been baptized into Christ, if you've not known the new birth, you may have had a lot of good experiences with God, but you haven't put the ring on the finger, and that's what baptism is. I want to encourage you, let us walk with you, so that will be true. For the majority of us, I think we just forget really who we are, that we are children of God. We've been united with Christ, his past and in his, for his, in his future, we are united as well. A great resurrection, a great day that will be. You get to choose your master. No other master will die for you. Your job, your boss, your 401k, they will not die for you. Your trophies, your achievements, nothing else will die for you that you may live eternally. Only one whose name is Jesus. He is worthy of our praise and our full obedience. Let's stand in worship.